Something strange happened that night. Tatuba told us all kinds of stories of voodoo, but none like this. I started shaking and convulsing, and it felt like if something was crawling on my skin. My body started bending in weird ways, contorting itself as I screeched in unimaginable pain. When my father begged me to tell him who caused this, I simply said the name that came to mind. Tatuba. <laughs> Hour. I am Sophia. I am Karina. And I am Wen. And, and we, we are, are your host. host. We are students at Foster High School and are currently studying the Salem Witch Trials in our U.S. History AP class. We are qualified because we conducted thorough research using credible sources under the guidance of our professional AP U.S. History teacher, Mr. Lanky. Today we bring you the backstory behind the Salem Witch Trials and the reasons behind the underlying tensions in Salem Village, which led to the uproar of innocent executions and accusations across the village. We will be answering several questions about the trials and linking elements of fiction through the book, The Crucible. However, our actual research will be based on non-fictional sources and true facts about the trials. In the village of Salem, located in Massachusetts, underlying tensions were beginning to surface. During this time, the Little Ice Age and King William's War had begun taking a toll on the people of Salem. During the 14th and 19th centuries, the Little Ice Age was a period of regional cooling that severely affected Europe and North America. This Little Ice Age caused an immense economic crisis. The economic deterioration and food scarcity caused by this time were one of the underlying reasons that led to the Salem Witch Trials. In the 1690s, New England was under attack from Native Americans who allied with French Canada. This siege ravaged the regions of New York, Nova Scotia, and Quebec. The higher powers inevitably sent the refugees to varying places for safety. One of those places, to no surprise, was Salem in Massachusetts Bay Colony. An abundance of residents fled to Salem or places near the village in fear of future attacks. The sudden abundance of refugees caused a strain on Salem's economic resources. As the Little Ice Age had already taken a toll on their agricultural practices, this very soon led to massive tensions within the community. Samuel Paris, an Englishman and Harvard graduate, was born in 1653 in London, England. After his father's passing, 20-year-old Paris settled in Bridgetown, Barbados in 1673 after inheriting his land. During this time, Tichuba became enslaved to Samuel Paris and was often mistreated, abused, and proselytized. In 1680, however, things took a turn when Paris struggled with successful harvests and had property damage caused by a hurricane. Surrendering to his downfalls, Paris returned to Boston, Massachusetts to, prefer, to pursue further education and merchantry and brought three slaves with him, Tichuba, John Indian, and an unknown boy of African descent. Unfortunately, the young boy died shortly after the voyage. In that same year, Samuel Paris married Elizabeth Eldridge and had their first child just a year later. In 1682, they had their second child, Elizabeth Paris, who was named Betty. At age 33, Paris began a new study towards becoming a Puritan minister, and in 1686, 
Paris often served as a guest minister in Boston churches. In 1688, Samuel Paris arrived in Salem, cutting his business ties in Boston to accept an official ministry position and settle down. In the very next year, Paris arranged a marriage between the enslaved 20-year-old Tituba and John Indian. Tituba's origins are quite unknown. However, it is believed that Tituba was a member of the Arawak tribe in Venezuela. Tituba, believed to have been born in 1660s, was likely between the ages of 9 and 14 when she was sold into slavery among 20 Arawak women and children. A document uncovered by historian Elaine G. Breslau suggests in the mid-1670s, Tituba's first enslaver was an unknown woman, who Tituba later described as a witch. Tituba claimed she refused participation in witchcraft. However, she did gain enough knowledge about certain charms and procedures that would protect people from witches. Betty Paris and Abigail Williams, the daughter and niece of Samuel Paris, had a tight-knit friendship. The two girls often found themselves in one another's company, and in the winter of 1691, the girls decided to dabble in fortune-telling. A few sources state they conducted the experiments on their own, but others say Tichuba introduced the idea to Betty and Abigail. At the time, fortune-telling was considered a grave sin, as it correlated to demonic activities according to Puritan beliefs. Even so, the girls shared their fortune-telling endeavors with other girls they knew. They used a divining tool called the Venus glass. It involved the dropping of egg white into a glass of water. According to local superstitions in Salem, the formation of the egg white would show a glimpse of their future husbands. However, the sight that was to behold one of the young girls would far exceed their expectations. This unholy sight would come to be engraved in their minds from then on. A Coffin in the Water Betty and Abigail were utterly shocked to their core. As despair filled their minds, the girls thought perhaps they'd truly be destined to live a life that's far from their idyllic dreams. Eventually, the two girls began acting strangely. They screamed, made incomprehensible noises, threw items, and contorted their bodies into horrifying, seemingly impossible positions. Samuel Paris hoped a prayer could cure them of their behavior, but deemed it to be ineffective. As a result, he called on William Griggs, the local doctor, to examine the girls. He concluded Betty and Abigail as victims of witchcraft. With the intention to help Betty and Abigail, Tituba made a witch cake by persuading the girls to urinate in a small portion of rye meal to make a loaf. After the loaf was baked and cooled, she called out to the family dog for his unexpected treat. If this had worked, she would have been able to identify the witch who was hurting the girls. However, Tituba put herself in a life-threatening situation, as her good intentions ended in possible demise. In the Crucible, there is a similar scene Abigail begs Tituba to make a potion to kill Elizabeth Proctor, possibly so that she can marry John. However, when this information is eventually exposed, Abigail puts the blame on Tituba for not seeming guilty or getting in trouble with her uncle. Dun, dun, dun! dun. Sarah Osborne, born in 1643, soon married Robert Prince in 1662. 25-year-old Osborne fulfilled her duties and social role as a Puritan woman living in Salem, as she shortly went on to have two sons, James Prince and Joseph Prince. Unfortunately, Robert Prince passed away soon after. 
By social expectations, Osborne would tend to their 150-acre farm until the boys came of age, and if she hadn't remarried by that time, the boys would be responsible for caring for their mother. Instead, Osborne had other plans. As soon as her deceased husband's coffin was closed, she went on to seek the companionship and soon marriage in 1686 of an Irish indentured servant, Alexander Osborne. Sarah Osborne, instead of giving her sons their inheritance, decided she'd rather keep it for herself and her new husband. In the mid-1660s, James and Joseph went on to sue their mother for their withheld inheritance. Sarah Good was born on July 21, 1653 in Wenham, Massachusetts. Sarah's life from the start was far from bliss, and it certainly never got any better. In 1672, when she was only 17 years old, her father, Don Solart, a successful innkeeper, committed suicide. Her father left an estate worth 500 pounds from which each of his daughters were to divide. But unfortunately, Mrs. Solart remarried very soon after, which resulted in her new husband getting the estate instead. Sarah Good then married Daniel Poole, a former indentured servant, who died in 1682 only to leave Good in debt. Her second marriage was to William Good. Her life didn't become any better after marrying William. Her first husband's debt were transferred, and they were held responsible for payments. They were homeless, poor, and almost at the bottom of the ladder, to the point that she, poor and pregnant, had to knock from door to door of the Salem village to ask for alms. Along with that, most residents of Salem disliked Sarah Good. They considered her family a nuisance to the town. She was also short-tempered and constantly smoked a wooden pipe, making her personal personality quite displeasing to others. In addition, she had several disagreements with other villagers which led to the people of Salem to believe that Good was quite rude and unkind. The cherry on top was her failure to attend church services, especially in a place like Salem, Massachusetts. was to tuba that was exactly what samuel paris was hoping to hear from young betty and abigail the girls were in such immense non-stop pain they'd honestly say anything in hopes for the pain to subside when no one else was in the room the tuba would be flying around the house biting and pinching us sarah good and sarah osborne was toward tuba's henchmen they caused us this terrible pain those words would come to have unspeakable consequences the girls would have never imagined now commenced the uproar of accusations and finger-pointing in Salem that believed a coven of witches was tormenting the children of Salem Village. In Salem Village, a new kind of horror had begun to brew. Even prayer didn't help the people of Salem. The two girls shared stories of their visions with their parents, and this was when the shocking reality of it all hit the adults of this quaint village. The stories of the four girls were shockingly similar. All the evidence pointed to Tachupa, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne. Now, all the evidence seemed to piece together. It was clear that they were, in fact, witches doing the bidding of Satan. On March 1, 1692, the town magistrates John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin led the initial questioning of the accused witches. They were led into the Salem Village meeting house one at a time to be interrogated. None of the witches could have any sort of legal counsel and couldn't call for witnesses. That's honestly messed up. They didn't have anyone to really help prove their innocence. They were ultimately held without any form of bail. The first witch to take a stand was 38-year-old Sarah Good. 
At the time, she was nursing her four-year-old daughter Dorothy, or Dorcas, and was also heavily pregnant and very moody. I think she was fearing for her life and her kids' lives as well. Sarah denied all the charges, and when the magistrate asked why she hurt the four accusers, Good snapped. I do not hurt them. I scorn it. And when asked again, she angrily replied, What do I know? You bring two others here and charge me with it? I would honestly be annoyed if they just kept accusing me. I wouldn't believe my innocence either. I find it quite offensive, especially every time Good feigned innocence, the young accusers would writhe in pain if it was hurting them. Leading the magistrate to continue to investigate, repeating the same questions to find out just who hurt the children. Under the intense pressure, Good threw Osborne under the bus, which caused the four girls in the gallery to testify again, saying Good and Osborne actually practiced witchcraft together. I feel like you'd be able to tell the girls that they were lying, but perhaps at that day and age, they couldn't. However, with that, the magistrate ordered Sarah Good to be held for trial and returned to her cell. 49-year-old Sarah Osborne was immediately taken in to be questioned after. Osborne had been sick for some time before the arrest. And in frail voice, she denied all accusations held against her. She must have been like what she said. Far too sick to be gallanting around town, flying on poles, and pinching little girls. She pointed out, too, she could be a victim of witchcraft herself. Luckily for Osborne... Alexander and three others whose names were not recorded testified for her. Her evidence definitely was the strongest because her illness started 14 months before, which is why she admitted to not attending religious services at the meeting house. However, to the extremely dogmatic masturbate, he felt in her time off from services, she must have been aligning herself with the devil. With this, Osborne was also held for trial to later be discussed. The last person was 30-year-old Tachuba. She was a model Puritan who evaded any sort of sins, except for the cake which she baked to try and help Betty and Abigail. She was definitely smarter than the others as she casted her eyes downward and wasn't defiant like the Sarahs. She answered respectfully in a quiet and strong voice. She insisted she didn't know witchcraft and had no involvement with evil spirits. She claimed to not know who hurt the girls. The girls began to cry in pain like they did when Sarah feigned innocence. Tichuba knew what she had to do just as Paris had told her and confessed to witchcraft. She knew if she hadn't, she would have been convicted and heavily beaten by her enslaver anyway. At least, if she confessed, she would be in good grace with Paris. When the magistrate asked again, Who hurt the children? Tichuba responded with, The devil for all I know. She explained to the magistrate that a man with white hair visited her and threatened to hurt the children if she didn't serve him. This was the confession everyone had waited for. The courtroom fell silent and the girl stopped complaining. She stated that the man would come in the form of a dog to visit her and he would persuade her with gifts to tempt her into hurting the children. Tituba also stated that her, Good, and Osborne would travel in spectral form every night to hurt the girls. And if she refused to follow the man's orders, he threatened to send a gang of spectral cats to harm her. While Tichuba continued to confess, the girls continued to convulse. Tichuba said, Sarah Good is here. And quickly, she covered her eyes and said, I am blind now. I cannot see. 
then began to convulse like the girls. Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne were convicted. Tituba was set free. On May 10th, 1692, Osborne died in prison. Then on July 29th, 1692, Good was executed by hanging. Tituba learned quite a bit about Puritans that day. If you had confessed, you would be set free, but if you had outright denied it, you couldn't be trusted. It definitely makes sense because if they confessed, even if innocent, at least they can be trusted. It was a bit hard to trust someone if you weren't sure that they were actually telling the truth. The last Salem witch trial was held May 1693. Although some of the remaining accused were condoned, the fact that they were accused was never to be forgotten. Rights so simple as to own or claim land were stripped off. Some who were pardoned had to stay in jail as they lacked money for payment. Years after the trials, acts of repentance, either by individuals or institution, were done. The General Court of Massachusetts declared a day of fasting and regards for tragedy and trials in January 1697. One of the judges of the trials, Samuel Sewall, announced his guilt and error concerning the witch trials. Following that, in 1706, Anne Putman Jr. expressed her regret as an accuser. In 1711, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts paid 600 euros to the family of 22 out of 33 people who had been convicted and then absolved. The state of Massachusetts formally apologized for the trials in 1957, but it wasn't until that year of 2001 that the remaining 11 were exonerated. Ironically, the Salem witch trials not only brought people together, but also led to changes in the U.S. court systems. What do you think about the trials? Any more additions? Well, according to my research, Linda Caporell offered evidence that proved rhymeal when exposed to excessive moisture produced a fungus called ergot. When ingested, this fungus can cause severe convulsions, muscle spasms, delusions, and a sensation of crawling under the skin. This, sim- this fungus caused similar symptoms of LSD. Oh, <laughs> so I guess that, like, makes sense now. It makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of feel like the Salem witch trials honestly, like, brought the people of Salem more together. Mm-hmm. Especially because, like, now, I, like, they have a day of starving because yeah. of the people who passed. So it's honestly, like, a day to just, like kind of like a remembrance and then not only that like i literally heard that they have like the best halloweens out there like they're Mm. very serious about halloween because of the salem witch trials and like witches are very popular out there (laughs) like it's just i think it's kind of cool yeah i'd want to visit sometime me too we should all go together as as a podcast yeah 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 Yeah. that would seem so fun okay well (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha